Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. A lot of news to discuss today. Predictably, the news cycle has been quite busy since I last spoke to you on Monday. Uh, we're here Thursday, November 17th. This is episode 23. We have the Trump announcement to talk about. What kind of prospects is he really looking at when it comes to his campaign? Uh, is he going to be able to pull off? a 2024 White House run. Of course, we're going to talk about the latest developments in the FTX debacle. What's going on there and why has the media been treating Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX with kid gloves? We're going to be talking about that. But we begin the show discussing what appeared to be on Tuesday nuclear war perhaps beginning. Maybe World War III, maybe NATO's Article 5 being invoked as we got reports that there were missiles that had landed in Poland, Russian missiles, killing two Poles. Those were the early reports out. The Washington Post and other media outlets cited anonymous senior intelligence officials as being their source for this. The Poles were a little bit slow to say that these were Russian missiles, but ultimately, uh, the Poles did say that they were, in fact, Russian missiles. The Ukrainians said the same. The Poles were convening their Security Council to try to invoke NATO's Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, an attempt to bring the United States deeper into conflict with Russia. The proxy war now going on since April, or rather since uh, February. Really a, a, a remarkable hoax. But of course, it would not be the first of the hoaxes that have managed to get the United States into war. We're reminded, of course, and this is a tweet from Mike Cernovich. He said, going to war over a hoax, as almost happened yesterday, would be consistent with the reasons America got into nearly every modern war, from World War I in the Lusitania to the Gulf of Tonkin to the USS Liberty. Sailor survived that one busting the scam after watching their friends die. And of course, there's Iraq WMDs, uh, which were not entirely a hoax in the same fashion as this was. But of course, we learned very quickly that no, uh, these were not Russian missiles that had landed in Poland. They were not Russian missiles. They were, in fact... Ukrainian missiles. And people said, well, the Ukrainian missiles were trying to shoot down Russian missiles. That's why they landed in Poland. That was the claim. No evidence for this claim, by the way. And there's uh, been a claim that because they were attempting to shoot down Russian missiles, even though it was in fact Ukraine that launched these missiles into Poland, killing two Poles, it is still in fact Russia's Fault. That has been the claim of the White House. That has been the claim of the Defense Department this week. The White House uh, quite literally saying that Ukraine launched the missiles into Poland and that it is Russia's fault nonetheless. Here are the remarks from uh, U.S. Defense Secretary, I should say discredited Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on all of this that uh, came out uh, just yesterday. We're still gathering information, but we have seen nothing that contradicts President Duda's preliminary assessment that this explosion was most likely 
the result of a Ukrainian air defense missile that unfortunately landed in Poland. And whatever the final conclusions may be, the world knows that Russia bears ultimate responsibility for this incident. Russia launched another barrage of missiles against Ukraine, specifically intended to target Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. This tragic and troubling incident is yet another reminder of the rec recklessness of Russia's war of choice. Russia's war of choice. And what other kind of war is there really besides a war of choice? I mean, you have to choose to be in a war. You could always just surrender, couldn't you? It's, it's a bizarre concept. They also have the concept of illegal war. Russia's illegal war. Well, what other kind of war is there? A legal war? It's a war of conquest, sure. But it's a war that Russia sees as justified and in their national interests to prevent NATO from further abutting right up against their country and placing offensive weapons right up against their country. And this invasion comes after some seven years of U.S. meddling in the region, first pulling off a coup in Ukraine in 2014, continuously dropping off weapons, uh, CIA and DOD trainers, uh, dropping off cash, dropping off explosives to these anti-Russian neo-Nazi rebels in eastern Ukraine. So it's a, it's a remarkable thing to see them come out and still blame Russia. But that is, in fact, what they are doing. That's what the system is doing. Uh, just some breaking news I, I should be remiss not to mention. Pelosi is, it turns out, not seeking uh, re-election to House leadership. Hakeem Jeffries is set to become the top Democrat in the House. This is something that I reported would take place in December of last year. On my Substack, you can go back and check out that article. That came up from from multiple sources on K Street uh, within the lobbying realm, and it is in fact now happening almost a year after I reported the campaign to put Hakeem Jeffries in. He's out of New York. Uh, he's got all the backing of uh, Wall Street. Really, he's a Wall Street guy, uh, and he will be the top Democrat, presumably the minority leader in the House. Now, we're going to be talking about the FTX fallout, but one uh, collapse that seems to be perhaps taking place is that of another uh, crypto enterprise known as Genesis. Now, you may not have heard of Genesis before, uh, but Genesis is a serious player in the crypto industry, and their collapse could, in fact, be even more significant than that of FTX. This was the report that came out just yesterday. Genesis, a $2.8 billion crypto lending unit, halts withdrawals, citing FTX collapse. Uh, Genesis, just so everyone knows, started as the first OTC, meaning over-the-counter Bitcoin desk in 2013, uh, meaning that if you had a bunch of Bitcoin you wanted to sell, you didn't want to push prices down by going into the open market, you could deal with Genesis over the counter, over the phone, and with certain assurances as far as them knowing who you are, knowing your legitimacy, etc., you could trade over the phone. This is how a great deal of financial transactions uh, at the institutional level, at the higher levels, take place on Wall Street, not necessarily in the open market or even in dark pools, 
but oftentimes just over the counter. If somebody needs to buy a large amount of stock, they go to somebody who owns it, they buy it uh, that way as to get a price which they can uh, guarantee is going to be within a certain range or, or even a precise amount rather than having to go into the open market. So OTC, uh, Bitcoin Desk, was they were essentially the first of that. Uh, they came out in 2013. Now, uh, Genesis is part of DCG. Uh, this is Barry Silbert's holding company. It, only, it also owns uh, Coindesk, Foundry, of course, Genesis. It owns Grayscale and Luno, all of these different uh, very opaque operations. And they would be a lot less opaque, you know, if they were if they were publicly traded. But we have no way of knowing what these enterprises are exactly worth. We don't have a great deal of transparency into their financials. Like it with FTX, I mean, it turns out that the uh, accounting firm they were using made Bernie Madoff's uh, strip mall accounting firm seem credible in comparison. Uh, at the height of the cryptocurrency market, to give you an idea, uh, back in Q4 2021, uh, they were doing huge numbers. Uh, Genesis was $50 billion in loan originations, $12.5 billion in active loans at the end of the quarter, uh, $31 billion in spot volume traded, meaning uh, actual you know, trades of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, $21 billion in over-the-counter derivatives traded, and I think some amount of listed derivatives as well, meaning uh, Bitcoin futures that trade at the CME. Uh, Genesis was one of the biggest creditors to Three Arrows Capital, having lent them a whopping $2.4 billion. Not over time, but at once. Three Arrows Capital, of course, went bust very recently. Uh, they operated in the fashion that people often operate uh, and call a prime brokerage house or prime broker. Uh, the kinds of a broker that would serve a hedge fund and other institutional type funds. Uh, Genesis then filed, after 3AC went bust, a $1.2 billion claim against 3AC or 3 Arrows Capital. A DCG, the parent company, stepped in and assumed the $1.2 billion claim, leaving Genesis with no outstanding liabilities tied to 3 Arrows Capital. So that is something that has played out uh, just very recently in all of this. So Genesis uh, lent some $2.4 billion to hedge fund Three Arrows Capital. Three Arrows Capital went bust. Uh, they have now come out and blamed FTX for that. They said that they had money with FTX and that FTX basically hunted down their positions uh, and caused them to have to liquidate and manipulated markets to put them out of business. That has been the claim of Three Arrows Capital, both formally and informally, but not really clearly until just recently. Of course, we also know that BlockFi reports are out there preparing to file for bankruptcy. They have, as of just a few minutes ago, uh, checking things out, breaking uh, recently, removed the page uh, from their website that lists their staff. So an incredible level of uh, sketchiness in all of this. And it's always been that way. People estimate there's been some Three to four trillion dollars in capital losses that have played out in the cryptocurrency market so far. To give you a sense, uh, in the U.S. in the global financial crisis, the losses were estimated at eight trillion. And so, 
a, a tremendous amount of capital destruction has taken place here. Now, this is, again, global, not just U.S.-centric, so you have to bear that in mind with that comparison. Uh, the uh, One of the co-founders of Three Arrows Capital uh, went on CNBC uh, yesterday via Zoom, and he had this exchange with CNBC host, uh, Squawk Box host, co-host, I guess, Becky Quick. And this is uh, what played out between the two of them. Andrew, it's, it's Becky. Um, I take it you're not in Bali because of the G20. Are you there because Indonesia is one of seven countries that won't extradite you back to the United States? Uh, no. Um, well, for, for one, I, I, I haven't lived in the United States for like a decade. I've been in Asia. But uh, for two, no, it's just a good place to be. It's a good place to be. Okay. So that was an exchange that uh, played out there between the two of them. The DOJ allegedly probing three arrows, uh, allegedly probing Binance over money laundering allegations. But back to Genesis here. Uh, Genesis had large exposure to uh, Babel Finance. This is a what they call a C5 platform. So they, it's not a DeFi platform. It's not decentralized. It's centralized finance platform. Uh, they got hit hard in June uh, when markets were really starting to tank. Uh, in August, longtime CEO Michael Morrow resigned. Uh, Jason Yanowitz, uh, the founder of Blockworks, said on Twitter, nearly everyone I know who is at Genesis is no longer there. And you can see that Genesis, the, their numbers have come down. This is from Q3 of this year. Uh, we compare the two, just $8.4 billion in loan originations, $2.8 billion in active loans, $18.7 billion in spot volume traded, $9.6 billion in derivatives traded. Even so, it, it did seem to be the case that Genesis was treated as the most credible counterparty in cryptocurrency, in that whole market. Now, stay with me here because this, this culminates to something. And you're going to see how that works. Now, uh, you have seen uh, these ads out there for these platforms. Uh, this is one here from uh, a company called Gemini. Not to be confused with Genesis. A Gemini is a platform that is owned by the two twin brothers who are uh, allegedly uh, those who came up with Facebook. They sued Zuckerberg. They settled the Winklevoss twins. And what Gemini says what their purported claim is, is send us your crypto and then you'll start earning yield on it. And they promise people deposit yields of, in some cases, 8%, in some cases, 10%, in some cases, up to 15, 16, 17%. Now, one of the things that you have to wonder in all of this is you're already dealing with an asset that is as volatile as cryptocurrency. And so you have to wonder, what exactly is the appeal of sending it to somebody to make some nominal amount of yield, like, say, 8% or 17%? Now, given in a zero interest rate environment, that yield is not exactly nominal. But the point is, if you make 8% annualized, but then the cryptocurrency crashes 70% during that same period of time, then how useful was it to you to make that yield? I guess better than not making the yield. And the other issue, of course, is that, and it's been a big issue in all of this, and it's why none of these lines of business have ever made sense to me, is that there is not a, a large enough, deep enough, liquid enough derivatives market 
for people to uh, be able to hedge their positions. Now, the function of hedging is very important in markets. So, for instance, let's say that you owned $50,000 worth of Bitcoin, for instance. You give it to Gemini. They promise you a yield of 12%. Simultaneous to that, you sell $50,000 worth of Bitcoin futures. Now you have a neutral directional position in the Bitcoin market as you make that 8% or 15% or 12% or whatever it happens to be yield. You're hedged. You know, net of transaction fees and things. Obviously, there's some transaction fees associated. You have to put up a little margin at the futures exchange through your broker uh, in order to put on that hedge because they don't know necessarily that it's a hedge because you have the Bitcoin over there. They can't see that. So, but it's but it's always something you haven't really been able to do because you can't you could never sell enough of those futures at the size you would need to sell them at in order to put on those hedges in real time, and so you never really had a functional market. You never really had a a, a functional market at all. And then the other question that arose out of it that made these businesses not make sense, and I would ask these DeFi people this all the time. You know, I, I remember I, I posing this question to uh, Andrew Tate, who I've known for several years, and I asked him uh, in this DeFi stuff because you know it's not my world, not my expertise, but he was offering a a DeFi uh, course, and he was a proponent of DeFi. But I mean, going back two years, not now. Uh, he was a proponent of it well before it was trendy, and he was never an evangelist of any of this stuff. He said, it's hot. You put your money in it, more money comes out. He was never an evangelist. I want to make that very clear. But he offered this DeFi course. And I said, you know, in this whole DeFi thing, you know, you're, you're making yield, you're doing this or that, but but where's the yield coming from? You know, for with, with a bank, for example, they pay you to deposit your money, presuming they do pay you anything. They're just starting to do that again now that interest rates have gone up. But then they take that money and they do things with it that are productive, they lend it out for people to buy houses. They lend it out for people to build houses. They lend it out for uh, businesses to use as working capital. They loan out the money uh, to um, uh, deals for mergers and acquisitions. They take the money and they buy treasury bonds with it and fund the U.S. government and they buy mortgage-backed securities and prop up the ability for Americans to then get mortgages uh, and have them be guaranteed. They do student loans. They do all kinds of things with the money that are productive that you can see in the economy that are real. And so my question was to Andrew Tate and to others is, uh, what do they do ultimately? What is the end user doing with this money that makes it able to generate this purported yield? And I could never get a straight answer to that. Nobody seemed to be able to tell me. I went back and I watched an interview with one of Genesis, uh, one of their executives. And it was on a, a podcast called This Week in Startups with Jason Calacanis. And uh, he was interviewing the guy. And he's like, okay, well, what, what do you do to generate the yield? And he says, well, basically, we're a prime brokerage house. We lend it to people to make trades. And we only lend it to very credible people to make trades. Operations like Susquehanna, operations like Jane Street, operations like Renaissance Technologies. And, okay, well, that's one thing. 
but there's only so much demand to borrow very illiquid cryptocurrency or to borrow cash to buy cryptocurrency. And if you're a big firm like that and you have all these other assets anyway, why would you go and borrow it and pay 17% to Genesis when you could simply borrow against listed securities at 2 or 3% a year ago with a general purpose margin loan? It just didn't make any sense to me. So then you've had these groups out there like Gemini that say, give us your crypto to consumers. We'll pay you yield. Coinbase has tried to do this unsuccessfully. The SEC has not allowed them to. They're an onshore operation. They asked the SEC for permission. So far, the SEC has said no. So it never made any sense. And all these people that thought they could make yield with this stuff, well, many of them have now found themselves bust because the money is completely gone thanks to fraud, thanks to a structural risk, systematic risk, operational risk, all of these risks that are very real that they uh, failed the factor in because frankly, you know, the average person who's involved in crypto um, is an imbecile. As uh, Dan Pena said, the average person who's involved in cryptocurrency is an absolute imbecile. And uh, they have zero financial knowledge, zero financial background. They don't even know the meaning of half the words that are coming out of their mouths. And it's why when you look at some of these YouTube influencers that promoted this stuff, I think about like Graham Stephan, and he seems like a nice enough guy. But I don't trust him and I haven't trusted him for a variety of reasons. The one reason I don't trust him is because he has too many signs of early onset low testosterone between his extraordinarily high-pitched voice like that of Ben Shapiro, uh, the patchy uh, facial hair growth, uh, and other signs as well. I can't trust him. Second is the fact that he cannot speak for even a minute and 15 seconds to do an ad read for... FTX or BlockFi, I think was another one of his sponsors, without doing jump cuts. I do this show sometimes for 45 minutes, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for an hour and a half. Just recently, we had a show that was two hours and eight minutes long, and I do it without basically any dead air, unless I'm pausing for effect, unless it's deliberate, or unless I'm not talking to play a clip, which we do very sparingly, and I talk for two hours straight. That is not a skill that a lot of people have. It requires a lot of preparation to know exactly what I'm going to be talking about and to keep it coherent and keep it moving and keep it as a thread. But if somebody can't even speak for a minute without doing jump cuts, I don't trust them. And the the jarring uh, nature of those jump cuts that are so popular on YouTube now, it's just painful on my ears. I can't listen to it. And it speaks to a level of incompetence or stutters to a level of incompetence more aptly is what it really does. So I can't trust somebody like that. And then lastly, you talk about these people like Graham Stephan and and Meet Kevin and these YouTube influencers, and these are people who really do not have a background that involves any level of financial sophistication whatsoever. These are Los Angeles area real estate agents that happen to have some charisma and got involved with YouTube. These are real estate agents. I don't know 
if you know a lot about real estate agents, I know a couple of real estate agents that are absolute killers. They could do the real estate business or they could do any number of other businesses. Some of them have law school degrees. Some of them are very bright. I don't want to disparage those people, but those people know and, and everyone else knows that that is the exception to the rule. And a lot of uh, real estate agents are nudniks. They're lame brains. They're midwits. And uh, they are not people who you would want to do an analysis of a financial system as complex as some of those that have been employed by these cryptocurrency exchanges. So to take financial advice from these people is extraordinarily foolish. It really, really is. It's extraordinarily foolish. You know, they, they also, the, these, these financial influencers have been huge proponents of people uh, basically signing up for every credit card under the sun to take advantage of points and deals and cash back and all of this. Really? I mean, and it's like this concept of, well, if you pay it off every month, um, then you get this stuff. Now, why do you think the credit card companies offer those deals? Because they don't offer them because they're nice. They offer them because they're money makers and people don't pay it off every month. And the other part is this, is that if you're operating in essentially a revolver fashion where you spend on the credit cards, you pay the credit cards, you're essentially always one month behind the eight ball on all the expenses or all of, most all of the expenses. The, the issue with that becomes that if you do have a calamitous situation, a job loss, a, uh, you know, somebody severely injures you um, and you had happened to, you know, your car insurance didn't renew and the person hit and run and you have $25,000 in bills suddenly, something catastrophic happens. Now you're a month behind boom, you're whacked with 25% interest, 21% interest, whatever it happens to be. And that's where even the most responsible people, if they aren't utterly cash rich, get into trouble. So they've been proponents of that stuff as well. And again, it hasn't been for free. They've been getting uh, referral deals, referral links, essentially money to push their uh, followers into the credit card space as well. Worst of all, pushing them into this BlockFi credit card and these FTX credit cards and other credit cards where now, as BlockFi goes out of business, they announce that they're going to not have uh, the ability for their customers to get their money out, probably because the money's gone. And then they make sure in the same press release to threaten everybody and say, make sure to pay your bill because we're going to damage your credit if you don't. After they, So imagine that. They announce that they're stealing all of your money, essentially, or it's all gone, or whatever the case might be. They're filing for bankruptcy. It's gone. You're not getting your money out. And in the same press release, they have the gall to threaten you and tell you, you better pay your monthly credit card installment to them or they're going to damage your personal credit. I mean, the, the level of audacity and arrogance in these crypto fraudsters is like nothing that has ever been seen. It says here, crypto is for people who can't make it in real finance. Sure, yeah, at the professional level, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why it was kind of remarkable to see Scaramucci get involved in that space. And uh, it, was, it was crazy because he's somebody who has made it in real finance. He's somebody who has made it. I mean, he's got a net worth over $100 million 
in legitimate finance as of say 2014, 15. I mean, he had made it and then he gets involved in all this crypto stuff. It was really strange. Um, and, and some of these people, you can tell when they talk about how revolutionaries, you can tell they don't even believe it as they're pushing it. They're not good enough actors. Uh, people say capital destruction. The money went somewhere, right? Can money be destroyed other than via the government? I feel stupid asking. This is a question. It's a good question, Mark. Uh, Mark McAllister in the chat. Let me explain this, um, how capital can be destroyed. Okay. I'm going to explain how capital can be destroyed. And it's an example that I gave before. Let's say you have a subdevelopment with a, I'm just going to give you an example here. Follow along with me. We're going to make some special assumptions to make this simple and, and, and in the interest of time, uh, easy to describe. I'll describe to you how capital can be destroyed. Okay. Let's say you have a subdevelopment of 100 identical homes. The homes in that uh, subdevelopment are owned by people uh, that live there and they're all worth exactly the same thing. And let's say that one of the homes is sold to somebody else who moves in for a million dollars. Well, based on the way that those kinds of assets, i.e. real estate, are typically valued, they're valued based on comparables. Let's say two of them sell for a million dollars each. Okay. Well, now everybody else in the neighborhood says, wow, our homes are all worth a million dollars. Because those two just sold for a million bucks. Okay. Well, then let's say that a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth home sell, and they only sell for a hundred thousand each, not a million. Well, then it turns out if you were somebody who uh, owned all of the homes, let's say if you were one party that owns all of the homes, you thought you had, say, a hundred million dollars, but you didn't. You only had ten million dollars. So the point is that notional wealth was created on paper. Wealth was created through the overvaluation of all the assets based on some transaction in similar assets. Imaginary value was created, but it's important to recognize, well, so what? It was imaginary and it's still imaginary. But the problem is that imaginary value can be leveraged into real value. So what happens if, remember, these are all owned outright. What happens if, you know, 30 of the people now go to a bank and they say, you know, I liked owning my home, but I'd like to take out a mortgage on it. I'll keep 20% equity. Give me a loan for 800,000. See, the home's worth a million. Okay, the bank does that deal on 30 of those homes. So now those people have 800,000 uh, extra dollars in the bank. And then let's say they go out and buy other real estate in another next door neighborhood in which everybody's also overvalued their homes. So you can see how you, you can have imaginary value created. And then that imaginary value can be leveraged into other value. And this was fundamentally the issue with the Madoff Ponzi scheme. The, the issue with the Madoff Ponzi scheme is that it went on so long. And I'll, I'll tell you kind of the, the issue here. So they describe Madoff sometimes as a $65 billion, $50 billion Ponzi scheme. That's not true. Uh, the estimates say that it was somewhere between 11 and 12 billion that he ever raised in cash form. 
11 or 12 billion, okay? But he's sending statements back to people over the years telling them that they're making 12% a year, 20% a year, or whatever, compounded. So you put, let's say, a million with Bernie. It's 30 years later. Compound interest is a hell of a thing. You think that you actually now have 10 million with Bernie. You act as though you have 10 million with Bernie. You buy that house. You withdraw a little bit when you need to pay for it. You do this, you do that. Well, it turns out you only actually ever had 1 million with Bernie, not 20 million. So you do things in the real world based on assumptions of wealth, which is the technical term is not imaginary, but notional. Notional value is the term that is used in finance. Notional value, unrealized value is another term that can be used. And so this is how wealth can actually be, quote unquote, destroyed. You say all the money goes somewhere. Yeah, but not if it's not realized money, if it's just notional value, right? And then if, but the thing is that notional value can be leveraged into real dollars in the form of loans, in the form of other financial decisions that people make and all of that. What was most remarkable though, is that when you talk about Bernie Madoff, it's estimated that he only spent something like $60 million personally. I mean, that's a huge theft. Don't get me wrong, but like 60 million. So incredibly in the Madoff case, um, the executors of that bankruptcy case have been able to recover about 75% of the money. Some of it was paid out to other investors. They've tried to claw it back sometimes unsuccessfully. Some of it was paid out in referral fees. But pretty much the money all went into a Chase account. Uh, he didn't go off and bet it on crypto or, you know, crypto wasn't really a thing but at the time, but or, or go out and, and, and bet it on crazy bets and lose it all in financial markets. So anyway, I hope I, I described that to you as far as how imaginary value, uh, imaginary money can exist and how wealth thus can be destroyed because you can think you have a certain amount of wealth, a certain percentage of it is unrealized, and now it's all destroyed. And then you can have other money you, you leverage based on that. Your net worth then goes into the negatives, let's say, that's wealth destruction. And if you, you play that out in a domino effect across much of the economy, you can destroy trillions in value quickly. Trillions can be destroyed quickly. I mean, look at the value of Facebook. If you had Facebook stock, let's say, um, and it went up and you were worth, you know, 30 million bucks and then it goes down 85%, well, 85% of your wealth's been destroyed. It didn't go anywhere. It just wasn't ever real, realized. It was just in the stock and now it's down. In any event, so we move on here. Uh, it, it may be possible here in this case, talking about Genesis, that's what we're discussing here, that uh, the larger conglomerate, the, the aforementioned DCG, has the funds to backstop this. They did, after all, backstop the other loss that took place. We will see what happens there. Meanwhile, as I predicted would be the case, Tom Brady, uh, Stephen Curry, uh, a bevy of other celebrities, Larry David, even though he said uh, you know, in the commercial, eh, not into it uh, when it comes to crypto, they've all been sued in a class action for their endorsement of FTX. Very predictable. Lawyers will do this. Uh, if nothing else, just to make a name for themselves. Um, and, you know, they will they will shake out a settlement in all likelihood. This won't go to trial uh, in, in, in any event. And then they keep 30% of the money. So if you had money with FTX, you're going to be getting a, a letter that says, you know, sign up for our class action. And uh, 
you know, maybe years later, you'll get 72 cents or something like that. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the media has been running puff pieces of Sam Bankman Freed uh, before this all took place. And even after, which is which is the most remarkable part. I mean, they have been treating this whole scandal with kid gloves because this guy is a massive Democrat donor, because uh, they're embarrassed of how well they treated him before, because uh, they liked his advertising dollars and they want other advertising dollars to keep coming from people like him. And it's just absolutely shameful. I would say it's borderline criminal what they've done. Look at this headline from the Washington Post here. Those of you watching, I'll read it to you for those of you at home. It says, FTX collapse dooms founders effort to prevent another pandemic. So you see here, uh, this little freak, Sam Bankman Freed, uh, he did all the virtue signaling, you know, the same stuff that Bill Gates does, saying that he really cares about public health and he wants to do pandemic prevention and he's donating all this money. That's the headline from the Washington Post. FTX collapse dooms founders effort to prevent another pandemic as if there ever was a true effort in earnest. There was a report out uh, of direct messages that came out uh, between Sam Bankman-Fried and I think it was a reporter. This report is in Vox News where he says the whole time all of that virtue signaling was just to throw up a smokescreen. He admits it in the DMs. He just totally admits it. Unabashed, just admits it, uh, says that it was all a smokescreen the whole time. The New York Times ran another piece about the collapse of FTX. They mentioned the word Democrat zero times. They mentioned the word criminal zero times, the word fraud zero times. But of course, we now have the report out. So FTX has been taken over by a restructuring executive, a man named John Ray III. He is probably best known for his restructuring of uh, Enron. He took over Enron when that came tumbling down. And he has had a lot to say uh, just in this recent filing about what he has found uh, in just the early moments, in just the first less than a week, really, of trying to figure all this out. First of all, he has determined that crypto assets deposited by customers weren't even recorded on the balance sheet. Presumably, all crypto assets just went into one central slush fund to be used for whatever. Uh, this uh, executive, John Ray, has determined that basically uh, this thing was a giant slush fund. Uh, they stole the money. As much as $4.1 billion in customer funds were misappropriated, stolen. Uh, with that money, they bought homes for the executives. They bought cars and other things. I'm going to read you uh, just a quote here from this report. And again, this is a very early report from John Ray. Uh, he is supported in this by Latham and Watkins, the big white shoe law firm, does a lot of restructuring law. He says here, related party loans receivable of $4.1 billion at Alameda Research Consolidated consisted primarily of a loan by Euclid Way LTD to Paper Bird Inc. So all these front companies, a debtor of $2.3 billion and three loans by Alameda Research LTD to one Mr. Bankman Freed of $1 billion. One to Mr. Singh of $543 million. One to Ryan Salome, $55 million. And the loans were not even recorded. They weren't even written down anywhere. They did not have an accounting department of any kind at FTX or Alameda Research or any number of these other front companies that were 
created. Uh, John Ray says in this uh, filing, filed under penalty of perjury, that this is the worst case that he has ever seen in his career. And remember, he worked on Enron. I believe he worked on WorldCom, many of these other uh, situations. One of the other things that uh, John Ray found is that FTX Group uh, submitted payment requests. They didn't have a payroll department. They would just informally submit payment requests through an online chat platform where a separate group of supervisors approved disbursements by responding with personalized emojis. Yes, that's how they actually operated. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and other senior executives, and as well as other people in the firm that were all encouraged to do this, um, used uh, the app Signal and the app Telegram with deleting, auto-deleting messages that would auto-delete within minutes. Totally illegal. Uh, even WhatsApp is illegal to use uh, by traders, by Wall Street traders. There's just a major settlement out by J.P. Morgan, who didn't properly supervise some traders that were using WhatsApp. And remember, WhatsApp's not even secure. Facebook turns over subpoena requests through WhatsApp all the time. So they did not keep any appropriate books, records, security controls, ledgers, none of that. Uh, the way that they controlled the cryptocurrency assets is that they had a, and this is according to John Ray, again, in this filing, the early filing, but it, it is a credible filing. They had a, a shared email account, and that is Mr. Bankman Fried and Mr. Wang, a shared email account where they would log in and put the various keys and just write an email note to self, put this key there, transfer this money there. So they stole some $4.1 billion dollars. The balances uh, exclude cryptocurrency debtors as a result of at least one $372 million unauthorized transfer. That was that so-called hack, uh, which Sam Bankman-Fried in DM said was either an inside job or malware on an ex-employee's computer uh, by an outside firm. They also found that there was a new dilutive minting of approximately 300 million in FTT tokens. So out of thin air, they invented, they printed essentially 300 million more in FTT, presumably to dump those onto the market, despite the depressed price, and extract uh, cash as they flee. It's believed that Bankman-Fried is still in the Bahamas. Uh, many others have left the Bahamas. They are gone. God only knows where. Just a, a a remarkable, remarkable fraud. I'm, I'm trying to see what else I, I might be missing here in terms of uh, all of this. By the way, in talking about Alameda Research, Tether may be the next one to go bust. Uh, they've done approximately $36.7 billion in business with Alameda Research. $31.7 billion was just in the past year. So Tether is probably next in terms of collapsing. Coinbase isn't looking good. Coinbase is not looking good at all. We're going to talk about that in one moment. I'm just trying to get you up to speed here. This is just one 30-page filing, just one early filing on FTX. This guy, this John Ray III, can't even believe what he has walked into here. Just total theft. Complete and utter theft. And again, it is far larger than Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff received something like $12 billion in total deposits. 
and he spent something like 65 million of all that money and 75% of it has been tracked down so far. Now it's not the crazy money plus return that people thought they they had, but their principal uh, was put in a Chase Manhattan bank account for the most part. Uh, they never had uh, at FTX, this is again a $32 billion company, never had any board meetings. They never had a board, nor did their subsidiary companies. A lot of great due diligence from Sequoia, right? And all these other guys that invested in this. They had no cash management system. Management had no idea how much cash was on hand at any given time, how much cash there was. They did not even maintain a list of bank accounts. FTX didn't keep proper records of who they employed. Employees and contractors commingled throughout the different companies without proper documentation of how they spent their time. Certain employees can't be located, uh, which could mean that some employees were fake, may not exist at all. Again, uh, corporate funds were used to purchase uh, personal use real estate. Employees and executives put their names on homes purchased with company funds. Again, all the money appeared to be a slush fund. Uh, And the filing also makes clear that Sam Bankman-Fried, though he continues to make public commentary, continues to talk about raising money, uh, is not associated with the company and that his commentary has been uh, disruptive to the current restructuring effort underway. So it is totally unbelievable here. I mean, I, I don't. I don't really know what more to say. I'm going to talk here just quickly about Coinbase. Uh, Coinbase is 2028 bonds. So these are bonds that trade on the open market. Uh, They trade now with a yield of around 14.6%. That is 10.7% more than comparable U.S. treasuries. Again, there's going to be some spread between them and and U.S. treasuries, but um, a spread of 10% is widely considered to be a sign of financial stress. The implied a default probability of these Coinbase bonds within a 12-month period of time is now 38%. If you still have your money of any kind, cash, crypto, anything else in these institutions, I think you're nuts. And that's not financial advice. That's just me telling me that I uh, telling you that I think you're a dope. I really do. Uh, it, it's It's just unbelievable. Now, you know, the one thing that, that I would say in all of this, and, and this is something that I uh, was up late last night, uh, you just a lot of work to do on the lobbying side now in the lame duck session. And I got back from lobbying probably 2 a.m. and I was up, I was up very late. Um, but I have kind of a lobbying insight and I wrote this up on Substack, but in 1978, there was a Supreme Court ruling called Marquette National Bank of Minneapolis versus First Omaha Service Corp. And in that uh, ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court basically said that the usury laws of one state can be exported through the mail to another state. Effectively, what that means is that let's say um, you are a credit card company and your headquarters, insofar as your credit card company, is in Nebraska. And Nebraska says that you can charge up to 30% on credit cards under their Nebraska law. Well, let's say you have customers in New York. New York says you can only charge people in New York um, 13%. Well, what this Supreme Court decision says is it said, well, if your headquarters are in Nebraska, it's Nebraska's law that applies. 
And as long as the bill was mailed or sent from, no email at that time, really, uh, from, from Nebraska, the fact that New York says you can only charge 12 or whatever uh, doesn't matter. You can export that interest rate out. Now, what that Supreme Court decision did, remember at the time, uh, credit cards were becoming a very bad business for banks because their cost of capital was very high. Interest rates were very high at the time. Inflation was very high. Default rates were high. The economy wasn't good. So banks were just losing money in credit cards. It didn't make any sense to be in that business. And they were in all these states where sometimes they, they couldn't charge enough interest to really make it worth it. This Supreme Court decision said, if you uh, have a state that has uh, no interest rate cap or very high interest rate cap, you set up your credit card company there, you send out the bills from there, it's that state's laws which matter in terms of the usury laws. So that was a landmark decision. It led to the, the massive expansion of the credit card business. It led to uh, states like South Dakota and states like Delaware and states like Nebraska becoming huge, huge hubs for the credit card business. It's the reason that uh, Sioux Falls has uh, one of the largest post offices in the world. Next time you look at your credit card bill, look at where it came from. Chances are it's come from Delaware, South Dakota, or Nebraska. There's certain other little arrangements uh, in certain other states, I think, as well. But those are the kind of the big three. I could be missing one. So this was a huge Supreme Court decision. It really set off the credit card industry. Uh, Joe Biden was a fan of it. It turned Delaware, along with Delaware's other corporate organization laws, into the hub uh, for business, for business organization, for LLCs, uh, business formation, you know, at least in terms of the entities in the country. So that was a law. Now, let's say this is my lobbying idea, and I'm just putting this out there in the open. I probably shouldn't, but this is a lobbyist insight for you. This is how lobbyists think, or good lobbyists, or Jewish lobbyists like me think. Good Jewish lobbyists, maybe. But if I were a state right now, okay, if I were, say, a small state uh, that had certain fiscal issues, you know, uh, a lot of states like this, you know, Mississippi or... Alabama or, or Kentucky or West Virginia, they don't have great fiscal balance sheets. So you look at California, and uh, despite the fact that California is so poorly run by Gavin Newsom, it is still such a dynamic economy that California runs like a $90 billion budget surplus, at least recently in the last cycle, or it's like 75 to $100 billion surplus. California's bonds are AAA rated. In comparison, Florida runs about a $20 billion surplus as of last count. Many of these kind of flyover states, though, that don't have these ultra dynamic economies and very uh, vibrant economies and and, and, and growing populations and high-paying jobs uh, the, where you can tax people, all of that. Uh, they have deficits and, and they're underwritten by the federal government. So if I were one of these states, here's what I would do. Uh, what I would do is I, do, I would immediately pass a sweeping financial deregulation. Sweeping financial deregulation. Uh, let's just use Louisiana as an, as an example. I, I would call it the Louisiana Financial Services Reform and Transparency Act of 2023. You never want to call it deregulation, by the way. You want to call it regulatory reform. That's how you properly do deregulation. 
you, you don't you don't call it deregulation ever because that makes people scared. It fires up your opponents. You call it the Louisiana Financial Services Reform and Transparency Act of 2023. You always want to put the word transparency in a bill like this if you can, because who could vote against transparency, right? It's uh, important. It's like when you do a big defense bill, call it the Raise the Troops Pay Act, because who can vote against raising pay for the troops? And the thing that I would do is I would promote the bill under the banner of consumer protection uh, to capitalize on the recent uh, collapse of FTX and to build support from the public. So put a couple measures in it that are, are built towards consumer protection, build support from the public that way. The public likes financial services reform and the public likes transparency and they certainly like being protected by the government. So you fly it under that banner from a branding standpoint. That's what I would do. I mean, I would make a financial deregulation bill that it was that is so competitive that every single financial services firm would want to be based in your state. And then, this is the important part. What I would then do is I'd very tactfully attempt to set up some case law, whether using the state AG or whether uh, using outside of government parties. I would attempt to set up some case law uh, in which you could you could try to get the Supreme Court or other high courts, probably first, but also the Supreme Court, to rule that the securities laws of your state, much like the usury laws of any one state, can be exported to every other state through the mail. And, and based on my reading of the case law, that's something that I think particularly a conservative Supreme Court, a Republican Supreme Court, would rule for. I mean, uh, you think about... Uh, usury laws, those are things that go back to the dawn of time. So if you can, or, or at least the dawn of Christianity, or the dawn of, and, and then even more so the dawn of Islam, really. So if you can do something that's viewed as an abridgment of another state's usury laws, certainly you can abridge other states' more esoteric regulations governing security through the mail, can't you? I would think so. And so what you would do is you would attract all of this business to your state because those companies could go there with the confidence that there's hardly any regulation by your own state's regulators. And it is that lack of regulation which now applies for them nationwide, presuming that whatever they're doing, whatever they're sending out originates in that state. Now, of course, in doing all of this, uh, you would need to make sure that this regulation that you pass is at least reasonably consistent with the overarching federal law governing securities and financial services. Supremacy clause still applies. All of that still applies. But lack of regulation, lack of laws is something that can't really, from a legal standpoint, be viewed as a contradiction. It is laws that contradict federal law that are a problem. In other words, let's say you have a federal law that says that the drinking age is 21, and you have a state law that says uh, the drinking age is 14. Well, that can be a problem. The, the federal law supersedes your state law that says the drinking age is 14. Federal law says it's 21. You are contradicting it with new law. 
But if you don't have any state level drinking law, and the federal law obviously applies throughout the country, they're not going to sue you for not having a state level drinking law, at least in most cases. And if worse comes to worse, uh, that state could simply refuse to enforce and refuse to cooperate with the federal laws governing this area that they see as contradictory to their state laws. It can go both ways. It's the same thing that many states or several states now currently do with many drug laws. So, you know, the feds say that pot is illegal. California and Colorado say we're not enforcing your federal pot laws and we're not cooperating with your enforcement of your federal pot laws. You do the same thing with securities. Now, this plan, which I think is very straightforward, it wouldn't be exactly easy, but it can be pulled off by the right lobbyists with the right partners within state legislatures, the right governor. I think Arkansas would be a wonderful place to do this, for instance. You could turn Little Rock into a massive financial hub. Uh, New Hampshire is another candidate for this, even though they don't really have fiscal problems. They know how to do banking regulation around this, credit union regulation. New Hampshire would be another place to try to do this. It would turn your state into the hub for financial services. Now, you might be saying, well, uh, but that's going to hurt consumers in that state, isn't it? No, I don't I don't think so at all. I think it's going to help consumers. Let me tell you, let me tell you why. All of the worst things that happen, these these abuses of of customers and all of that, you don't need to go deep into the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act or the uh the 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 uh the Securities Act of 1933 or 34. Um, to, to charge crimes when these things happen. Okay. Like you don't have to go into the most esoteric regions of securities law to protect consumers because when consumers really get screwed, it is because of violations of, uh, the wire fraud statute, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, money laundering, uh, uh, theft by fraud, attempted grand theft. You don't have to go into the most esoteric regions of how a certain swap transaction is categorized as either within the realm of commodities or securities. You don't, you don't have to go there to stop the most ter- terrible abuses because when those most terrible abuses take place, they're just theft anyway. And you can charge that under wire fraud. And so that's what I would say. And the other part of it is this, you have to recognize that the consumers of your state are going to be harmed by the FTXs, let's say, of the world. Either way. Now you have two options. You can have FTX be based locally in your state, where you have the ability to oversee them, where you have the ability to stop by their headquarters and go check things out, where you have the ability to easily interview their employees. Uh, Frankly, where you have the ability to exert what regulation you do have, jurisdiction over it, because they're down the street. As opposed to passing overburdensome regulation that's too expensive for any company, especially a new company, to comply with. And then being in a position where you chase that company now off to the Bahamas, the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, wherever they happen to be based offshore, Dubai. Because think about the current situation. The current situation is you have extremely complicated, dense 
often contradictory securities laws. You don't need those securities laws to make what Sam Bankman-Fried did illegal. That's just called wire fraud. It's just called money laundering. You don't need extremely complex securities laws to stop that. And you get all of the downside of the FTXs of the world existing and more because then it's harder to break it up. And you get none of the upside. You know, any of the wealth effect that was generated, any of the jobs that were generated, the ability to actually see what they're doing because they're in your state as opposed to being offshore someplace. The only people that benefit from increasing regulation out of this FTX situation are the Bahamians, are the Bermudans, are the people of the Cayman Islands. They're the only people who benefit because think about the situation they're in. They get all the upside, all the real estate sales, they get all of the jobs, they get all of the hype, money comes in around these things, venture capitalists visit, they stay at hotels, they get all of this business effect. And in the cases where it doesn't work out, they're the first people to interdict because they happen to be there. They don't have to seek permission to come visit like the FBI might have to seek. And so the one people, uh, the, the one group of people in the world right now who can actually get their money out of FTX are who? Bahamians. That's right. Because the Bahamians are there. They can exert themselves. So like I said, this uh, FTX situation it presents a clear uh, opportunity for um, for uh, deregulation, and it and it should be what the House begins working on is deregulation. Now, I will concede the people who don't like deregulation. Do you know who likes increased financial regulation? Who likes increased financial regulation? There are two groups that like increased financial regulation, more financial regulation, more complex financial regulation. Only two groups. A, well, three groups. A would be the regulators that get increased budgets to go out and enforce the increased financial regulation. B are the lawyers who get increased revenue to go deal with those regulators who now have an increased budget. And C are the entrenched monopolies who are the only people who can afford to hire enough lawyers, those lawyers we just talked about in group B, to deal with that on behalf of their business. So the only people who benefit are A, the regulators, B, the lawyers uh, who have to deal with those regulators now, and C, are the entrenched monopoly firms that can afford to hire those lawyers. And by the way, those groups are not exactly mutually exclusive because what do we see happen? The regulator then goes and becomes a private sector lawyer working for the bank or working for FTX or working for the crypto firm. So those groups aren't even necessarily exclusive. And because one feeds into the other, essentially the only people who benefit are, like I said in the beginning, kind of the one group, the entrenched monopoly. So that is how that works. It, it never manages actually to protect consumers. Nobody can point to one instance where Dodd-Frank has protected consumers. Dodd-Frank has reduced liquidity in the bond market severely through something called the Volcker Rule, which stopped banks from insider, not from insider trading, from proprietary trading. Uh, stopped them, you know, place like Goldman Sachs used to be one of the huge market makers in fixed income products. 
can't really do that in the same way they used to any longer because of the Volcker rule. That means when you own a bond ETF, every transaction now is more expensive for you. The fees add up quietly. You never really see them printed out. You can't really know what they are. Sometime on the show, in fact, if one of you guys will send me an email, um, if one of you guys will send me an email, jacob at jacobwold.org, we'll talk about soft dollars, soft dollars on this show. There's something called the uh, soft dollar cost scam, soft dollars. Somebody send me an email, jacob at jacobwold.org to remind me for the next episode. Cause I, I, by the time I edit this, it'll just, it'll float away from my head. Soft dollars. We're going to talk about mutual funds, soft dollar costs on one of these shows. You'll be amazed. You have no idea what's going on on wall street. The kind of schemes that go on. Do you know why Mike Bloomberg is worth $100 billion? He's worth $100 billion because of something called soft dollars. We're going to talk about that uh, on the next episode. We don't have the time today. Uh, so that, anyway, is, is my plan. Uh, that's what I would do. Um, if somebody mentioned Nebraska. Yeah, Omaha, Nebraska has a lot of financial services as well. Omaha does. Um, so... These places do exist. Now, let's hear a talk about the Trump announcement. I want to talk about that here. I guess the speech was boring. I didn't watch it live. I was not at Mar-a-Lago uh, for the announcement. Soft dollars. We're going to talk about that next show. Email me, jacob at org. I want to talk about the Trump announcement. But first, I just want to tell you how you can support the show. Uh, first thing is sharing the links, uh, getting the links out there. Also, I've had a few of you email about can can you clip the show? Uh, can you clip the show? Can you post it on your own channel? I have a show called Jacob Wool Clips. If you reach out, you send me an email. Um, I, I'm looking for people. I'll give you a login uh, that you can post videos, have certain, you know, um, authorities, you know, certain privileges within the, the channel to post. Um, and I'd love that. And some of you even ask, well, can, I, I'm not, they say I'm not banned on TikTok. I know you're banned, Jacob. Can I post clips from your show on TikTok. Yes, you you have everybody out there. You have full license to post clips from the show wherever you like. Rumble, BitChute, Telegram, your channels, your TikToks, your Twitter. You have full license to post this wherever you like. Absolutely. Uh, you can post clips wherever you like. And if you'd like to maybe help me out and, and get clips up on the Jacob Will Clip Show, that'd be great too. Um, I've had an issue with YouTube where even though I enable clipping on this channel, it's enabled in the settings. It doesn't let people do it. I don't know if it's some kind of a censorship thing. I'm not sure. The the, the native clipping, I mean, within YouTube doesn't seem to allow that. So uh, we have to we have to figure that out. Um, but anyway, you have full license to post. Of course, you can also support the show financially. Uh, that's huge. I mean, th these shows take a long time to repair. They take a long time to do, long time to put out there. It's a lot of work, and it's just a simple concept called value for value. And the way it works is that is that my show is not supported by crypto scams. I'm not pushing you into crypto scams. I'm not pushing you into uh, crypto uh, retirement accounts like Ben Shapiro has done. By the way, I, w I wonder how many of those crypto retirement accounts were domiciled at FTX. I wonder how many of Ben Shapiro's listeners have now lost their retirement accounts uh, in this crypto garbage. Uh, because a lot of these things turn out to be domiciled at FTX or at these other outfits. 
I don't do that. I don't take advertising. Don't tell you to buy mattresses or, or strange underwear. Uh, what I tell you to do uh, is if you get value from the show, you send value back to the show in the form of, of your time and talent. If you're posting clips and stuff like that, or uh, in the form of uh, capital, in the form of making the show financially sufficient, you can do that on Cash App, Real Jacob Bull on Cash App, Cash App, Real Jacob Bull, uh, or uh, through the, the Gumroad page, which is accessible through jacobull.org slash podcast. That's jacobull.org slash podcast. I really appreciate that. Uh, we've had uh, really a growing donor base here, and I can't thank you enough. Um, I, I, I want to put even more time into this show, to be honest with you. I mean, lobbying is a is a tough racket. I will tell you, it is a it is a tough business. And uh, I'd love to do this show, I mean, semi full time. That would be that would be great. I just have to get the, the cash flow to a point where where we can do that. Um, but talking about the Trump announcement here, you saw the memo went out. Uh, NPR uh, runs a headline, Donald Trump, who tried to overturn Biden's legitimate election, launches 2024 bid. Trump, who presided as who, who as president fomented an insurrection, says he's running again. That's uh, Washington Post, NBC News. Trump, whose lies about the 2020 election inspired an insurrection, announces third White House bid. The Guardian, Trump announces 2024 run nearly two years after uh, inspiring deadly Capitol riot. So they all got the memo. They put that out there. I, I understand the speech was not great. I don't, I mean, I, I frankly haven't, I, I didn't watch it live. I've seen clips of it. I didn't find it especially enthralling. Um, as far as, you know, Trump, DeSantis, what's going to happen? I, my view is that it doesn't make a lot of sense from a risk reward standpoint for DeSantis to take on Trump. DeSantis is a young man. He's 44 years old. Uh, and he's just got so much more downside. If he takes on Trump, Trump goes after him. He ends up permanently marred like Scott Walker or Jeb Bush. When instead he could just wait or maybe Trump fizzles out or whatever happens, he could just wait and, um, you know, run it another time and uh, and um, have a much have a much better risk reward from that standpoint. The one thing that's been said, it's been said by people like Mike Cernovich, and, and I tend to agree with it, is that this is going to be the lawfare election. 2018 was the trial run of ballot harvesting, things like that. 2020 uh, was an election that saw incredible lawfare. I mean, the issue with 2020 is that the the election in 2020 was basically lost by the end of calendar year 2019 because Democrats had managed to ram through and then they continued to do it in early 2020 under the auspices of pandemic response. They'd managed to ram through these these procedural changes to voting that give them an unfair advantage. And, and, and why do they give them an unfair advantage? Let's be very clear about what I mean by that. Without alleging here, which I'm not doing, without alleging that the machines are rigged, without alleging that there's barns with ballots waiting in them, without alleging any of those things, I'm not doing that. It gives the Democrats an advantage because at, at a minimum, what they have an advantage with is being able to harvest ballots in urban areas. Think of the idea of ballot harvesting. In California, in districts where you have big sprawling uh, subdevelopments of houses very close together, what do you have? <clears throat> you have situations in the Inland Empire and CA-41, Ken Calvert, 
uh, wins using ballot harvesting throughout Orange County. Republican candidates win using ballot harvesting. Why? Because it's practically uh, feasible for them to do it. They can go door to door to door in a neighborhood which they understand to be principally Republican, and they can go out and make sure that the mailed out ballots in that neighborhood are collected. In fact, they did it so well uh, that the California Attorney General has sued Republicans for doing this in certain cases. But if you go through most of the country, let's say Pennsylvania, that is not the case. In Pennsylvania, Democrats have an advantage. Uh, I believe ballot harvesting is illegal there. But if you if you just assume that ballot harvesting is legal, even though I don't believe it is in Pennsylvania, is the last time I checked. Same thing in Ohio. Think about the situation, or Wisconsin. Think about the situation. Democrats can go through an urban area, housing projects, apartment buildings, quickly go door to door to door, collecting everything, knowing that that, say, a black housing project's 90 percent Democrat collecting those ballots very easily, logistically easily, whereas a Republican has to go out to Mount Pleasant and hike through the hills, hike through the Appalachians, uh, try to get into a fenced off property, get past the dogs, get to the front door and say, uh, hey, I'm here to harvest your ballot. And then the guy says, get out of here, ballot harvester, Democrat. I'm not giving you my ballot. It's not exactly very feasible. And so at a bare minimum, Democrats had an advantage in situations like ballot harvesting vis-a-vis -vis the fact that they have an urban and, and suburban, in certain states, uh, predominant vote. And Republicans have a rural and outskirts vote. And that's a, a much harder thing to try to take advantage of through things like ballot harvesting, through things like uh, a mail-in uh, voting at the last minute makes it much harder to do. Okay. Now that was all rammed through the courts by Democrats. Trump was not able to respond. That was lawfare. And 2022 is going to be that to a much greater degree. I agree with that assessment of the 2020 or the 2024 election rather 2024. So if Trump really wants to win in those ways, like you have to look at Michigan, for example, the case that Michigan brought against me is now before the Michigan Supreme Court. I understand that the Supreme Court of Michigan is, is Republican-leaning. Uh, we hope, of course, that they do the right thing. Why does Trump not have cases before the Michigan Supreme Court over situations now of their election procedures? He should. He doesn't. You have to be fighting these battles now. Now. So if Trump really wants to make this work out. What he needs to do is he needs to hire somebody like me. It doesn't have to be me. Somebody like me who knows how to hire really great lawyers very quickly in states all over the country, which I have unfortunately had the burden of having to do over the past several years with all of this, and then manage them, manage the costs, manage the progress and everything. And make sure that state by state, these things are worked out and that he's fighting these battles. I mean, that the lawyers I have in Michigan are, are fantastic litigators. They'd be great for Michigan for Trump. Guys I have in Ohio have been great in Ohio. Uh, Dave Schwartz has been excellent for me in federal court. These are people uh, that uh, Trump needs to have. 
So we'd have to have somebody like me. Uh, the campaign would have to commit, say, $300,000 a month to be safe uh, to this effort to fight these battles all over the country. And remember, it's not just offense. You're going to be reacting to other things the Democrats are going to try to do. For instance, you know, you saw this trial balloon in a couple small races where Democrats sued to move candidates off the ballot that had been president January 6th, citing some uh, very obscure interpretation of the 14th Amendment, some perverse uh, interpretation of the 14th Amendment that they believe says that uh, these are insurrectionists and thus they can't be on the ballot, and doing so successfully in some cases, in other cases appealed, in other cases unsuccessfully. But you can rest assured that they're going to be doing things like this, whether they are legal or not. They're going to try to do them. They're going to bring them before Democrat judges. They're going to be judge shopping all over the country. They're going to be suing to get Trump off the ballot. They're going to be uh, suing to uh, make it impossible for Trump to campaign. They are going to be targeting people attempting to assist Trump's campaign in the way that I was targeted in the 2020 election and taken effectively taken off the field. The Michigan Supreme Court saying that I was not allowed even to have political speech come out of my mouth in any mass communication until after Election Day or I would be thrown in jail, a condition of bail. First time ever in history that's happened. That's all going to be happening. And Trump has got to be ready, basically, to put on a full-scale legal counterinsurgency in America's courts across the country. And you can't do that by having miscellaneous late 20s, early 30s, tenant landlord law uh, specialized bimbos from Palm Beach uh, traveling around the country handling legal situations where they are completely out of their depth, which is what he has been doing now. This Lindsey Halligan, are you kidding me? Lindsey Halligan is going to litigate in the Eastern District of Virginia a national security case? I mean, this whole... Hiring the worst people thing at this point is just it is so uh, embarrassing that I, I, I'm not even sure how to describe it. I'm not sure that I can come up with the words to describe it. So that is what Trump needs to do. It is absolutely critical. I mean, frankly, even if you have an all star litigator from Florida, a great litigator from Florida, you can't go and send them to go fight an election uh, situation uh, in, in New Mexico that concerns state law that requires familiarity with that state's own case law as well as federal case law, but that state's own case law, that state's own legal procedure. You know, one of the things that I have, uh, unfortunately, again, uh, become familiar with is, is the concept that state to state, forget the different laws, the procedures vary greatly from, you know, Maryland to uh, New York to uh, federal court to Michigan state court to California state court to Ohio state court. They all have their own proprietary types of hearings that are laid out in uh, their own state's case law. What's a 995 motion? What is a uh, Cobb's assessment? What's a fill in the blank. I mean, they all have their own. Uh, federal court, thankfully, is pretty standardized. But the procedures alone 
required that the lawyers handling it have local experience that is that is well reputed that is successful experience in that state you can't just have you know harmeet dillon because you saw her on fox news who i understand is a competent california lawyer uh, go fight election cases in pennsylvania in state court in their state supreme court even it is just not something that's going to work. It, it, it's 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 so it is so uh, uh, unbelievable. It's so unacceptable at this point. So what Trump needs to do is have somebody who can coordinate the legal effort, who can hire the lawyers around the country. Make sure that they are ready, A, to act, because there are cases where they need to be acting now. They need to be bringing litigation now. And then number two, react. Because when the Democrats bring a case in Ohio to change this or that about the voting procedure, it's too late. It's too late to now try and go and hire the lawyers there. It's too late. So then what are you left with? Well, you're flying in Rudy up there. Let's say, or in Pennsylvania, you're flying in Rudy Giuliani. He's he's charging you twenty thousand dollars a day. Yes, that was the actual invoice that Rudy turned in, and that's why he wasn't paid that invoice because it was an insane invoice. People do that sometimes. They send you insane invoices. I've dealt with it. Not thankfully from lawyers usually, but from other types of professionals I've had to hire, you know, with Predator DC and things. And then what? Rudy's going to fly in there and 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 become an expert on Pennsylvania uh, legal procedure and Pennsylvania state law and Pennsylvania's own case law instantly, and is going to and is going to somehow uh, even have the 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 stamina to make it in there and figure this out and write up motions and all this. Of course not. This is nuts. It, it was it was handled in a way that was complete amateur hour. It was uh, it became a, an absolute embarrassment uh, to see. Uh, Sidney Powell uh, and and Joe DeGenova and um, these other um, uh, uh, charlatans get up there. I remember Joe DeGenova was a, was a QAnon pusher. He he said that. Uh, remember, he said that the eight hundred nine. I remember. In fact, I was in Ukraine at the time. I was listening to a podcast, and Do, Joe DeGenova uh, got on. This must have been. Uh, was it July or August of 2019? And he said, by next, this was like a Wednesday, he said, or a Thursday, he said, by Wednesday, um, the 800 indictments are coming out or whatever about QAnon, essentially, on Fox Business. And of course, they didn't come out. And yet he still had a place in the senior legal team doing this. But the bottom line, there shouldn't be a senior legal team that flies all over the country and is, and is carrying these things out uh, in state level court because they can't do that. It's crazy. And even if you're dealing in federal court, again, where the procedure is somewhat standardized, it's going to be over matters of uh, uh, oftentimes state law or even local procedures down to the county or precinct level. Has to be done. Uh, he needs to get this together immediately uh, or this is not going to be a successful presidential bid. Regardless, of the issues, regardless of Joe Biden's unpopularity, regardless of whether the country wants Trump or not, has to be handled, has to be taken care of. Uh, folks, 
I appreciate you joining me for this analysis and reporting today. We're going to be back Monday at 2 p.m. live here on YouTube. Podcast apps shortly thereafter uh, with the audio version. Support the show uh, by sharing the links or clips. You can share clips of the show anywhere you please. Financially, Cash App at Real Jacob Wool, Real Jacob Wool on Cash App or uh, jacobwool.org slash podcast. jacobwool.org slash podcast is another way you can do that. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you for joining me today on The Jacob Wool Show. And I'll be back on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time live right here on YouTube. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend.